Maybe it's you, okay? And I, I, say, I say this with, with humility. You'll see as we go through the passage tonight. Um, I'm, I'm actually really, uh, I feel like I'm walking on thin ice throughout this whole passage. You'll see why. But, um, or, or maybe you have a roommate that, that plays video games like all the time and they're failing school or they watch Netflix so much and they're complaining about their grades, but it's actually because they're staying up till four in the morning every night, binging on things. And, and, and if you're not that person, you actually want to grab them and go, you're being a moron. You will never be 25 thankful for this moment, ever. Like you'll never look back and say, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I stayed up and I watched, I don't know, season seven of Friends for the ninth time uh, or whatever it is, instead of studying or whatever. Like you'd never look back and do that, right? Um, there's, there's lots of things, right? Maybe you have a friend or a roommate that's spending all of their money on alcohol and fast food and they can't pay rent on time. And you just wanna go, you're, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's so much murmuring right now that I, I, probably I'm just talking about you instead of your friends, okay? I know, but, uh, but, but, but this is a sober reality for some of us. Like if it's not, if you can't, often friends, we actually just don't see ourselves well. That's gonna be some of what's coming out of this text. But we can see some others around us in these situations and when we see them, it hurts. And what we want is for them to see what we see. If, if you're my roommate and you are pissing away your college life, you're treating your friends or, or your romantic interests or your family terribly, or all of the money you're spending is, is going away and it's going to carbohydrates and dumb decisions, like all the time, like I, I, I want you to know what I see and not so that you feel ashamed, but so that you might get help. Because right now there might still be hope. I have watched in my 12 years at the house, I have watched a lot of people flunk out of school for no other reason than Netflix. That's not a joke. That's, I'm dead serious. I don't think they're looking back at their life and going, I mean, all in all, I think that was okay. I, I, but, but I just, I want them to, I want to grab them and go, stop it. But not because I want you to feel bad. And it's such a really weird thing to do, you know? It's like that intervention thing where we gotta have like a sign and friends over and do, it just feels weird. Like I gotta have help because I can't tell you alone because if I tell you this is a problem in your life, you're gonna swing at me. And so I've gotta bring others with me, right? This passage is a bit of an intervention. This whole passage is a little bit of that for us. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm walking in. All right, so uh, context. Last week, um, last week, if you were here at the house last week, we walked through John chapter six, and last week we left with sort of Jesus alone with just a cluster of disciples. It was a really depressing sort of moment in the story. Jesus, in a manner, in a matter of one day, he went from tens of thousands of people clamoring for him to be king to only a dozen disciples one of whom would betray him, we're told. And all this happened in 24 hours, thousands to 11 and an asterisk. And if you've been reading the Gospel of John, you know that the story gets a little more somber as we move through chapter 7. For right at the beginning of chapter 7, we, we find out that even his brothers don't believe him. And so we come upon in chapter 7, um, the great feast of booths. Actually, I gave, I gave you tons of slides. I don't think I'm going to like say like when they need to come up. Sorry. Uh, but maybe as I'm talking, if they make sense to you, just throw them up during the thing. Um, just to kind of anchor us through the story, I've got a handful of slides. Um, so, so we come across um, the great feast of booths, otherwise called the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and so for the Jewish people, um, there were three great feasts that they celebrated every year. Three great feasts. Commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 16. You can read it there. The feast for the Passover sometimes called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which celebrated for the Israelites the gift of freedom from slavery, the exodus.
Exodus story. They would celebrate Passover. They were commanded to celebrate Passover to remember the gift of freedom from slavery. And Pentecost, sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the gift of the law being brought down by God to his people. And then the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, celebrating the gifts of provision that God gave his people during their wanderings in the wilderness. In those first five books of the Bible, we read about these things. These are the gifts that God gave them during their wilderness wanderings were manna on the desert floor, this sort of magic bread-like thing that would show up for them, and, and water miraculously coming out of a rock, and the guidance by a cloud of fire to lead them. This is the way God provided for his people with bread and water and light. And it's interesting to note that one of John's stated purposes in the gospel, we come to this almost every week, is to reveal Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. And here, in the conversations leading up to and during the Feast of Booths, Jesus identifies as true food, true water, and true light. All of the major provisions that God gave his people during that feast. And so all around Jerusalem during this time, during the, the Feast of Booths, people would have been camping um, outside their homes. They would have literally, if they had a roof to do it, they would have pitched a tent on the top of their houses or pitched a tent in their gardens or the spaces next to their, their houses to remember the temporary dwelling places that they had in the wilderness during the time of the Exodus. They wandered and wandered and so they constantly set up camp and then moved and set up camp and then moved. These were not permanent dwellings. And so for a whole week, they would camp outside their homes all around the city of Jerusalem. And this celebration had become the favorite holiday of the Jewish people. We're not entirely sure why, because the other two feasts seem to center, uh, uh, you know, around some more pivotal moments in their history, right? The Exodus and the law. But, but it's probably not so different than Christmas being our favorite celebration as a nation, probably. Even though, arguably, Easter might be a little more important. Arguably. I mean, these things go together, right? Any, in any case, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle, that was the big one. That was the one everybody got really excited for. Everyone in the city out in their tents, eating and drinking and sleeping outside. It was a week-long party in the city. And on the last day, it was just uncorked. It was called the great day of the great feast. And, 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 the, and the, the, the leading men in the city, the pious men, they, they, would, um, they would grab torches, light them on fire, and dance around the temple, singing songs of praises while music played, and light and song poured out of this temple area onto the city of Jerusalem. And we're told in John chapter 7 that Jesus went secretly to this festival. And in the very middle of the feast, a few days in, he went up to the temple and he started preaching. And things get kind of tense. First, there's confusion because many there knew that Jesus did not have any kind of formal education, but he, he was very learned, like learned, right? Like he, he seemed to have access to, to knowledge that, that, that we normally get through a, a rigorous education, and he didn't have that. How is this happening? And when Jesus tells them when they're questioning that his teaching's actually from God, some of the Judeans want to kill him. And they're still incensed at his earlier claims to be God and that he healed a man on the Sabbath. If you read things in bits sometimes in the Bible, you may just kind of forget stuff, but there's the lingering notion that Jesus had healed a guy a few chapters earlier, which to you might seem like a mile ago. It's, it's actually 10 minutes of reading, but it's not that long ago. But, but Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath at this pool, and people were furious because it was, it was the Sabbath. 
He's bra- which in their estimation, he just broke the law. Here, Jesus, I think, demonstrates his genius, right? So the Israelites were commanded by God to do no work on the Sabbath, okay? That's, that's one of the rules God gave them um, in the Torah is not to do any work on the Sabbath, right? Okay, well, they're also commanded to circumcise their boys on the eighth day. So what were they supposed to do if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Hmm. Whoops. Damned if we do, damned if we don't kind of stuff, right? The conundrum, it like reminds me of something. I don't hear it too much anymore, but I remember hearing this quite a bit when I was in college in terms of like philosophical conversations. Um, Somebody would be like, hey, if you were hiding a Jew during World War II and a Nazi soldier knocked on your door and said, are you hiding the Jews? Would you lie? Like I remember being like, yes, yes, I would lie. I would say, no, I'm not. And they're like, well, that's a sin. You know, like, uh, truly, that's like a philosophical sort of conundrum, I think, when I was 18. That was like, whoa, you know. Um, uh, And Jesus, I think, just utterly destroys that kind of nonsense with his life and teachings. And he presses specifically on the point here. The Pharisees had to make a decision about what to do, right? They had two laws, and they couldn't figure out how to integrate them or reconcile them, right? Do they circumcise a boy or do they sort of not do it on the ninth day? And either way, they're, they're breaking some commandment. And they decided, they determined that, that the lesser evil or the safer, safer route was to circumcise the kid. And so even if it was the Sabbath, they would circumcise him. And so Jesus tells them, you circumcise on the Sabbath, but you're mad at me because I made an entire person well? What kind of logic is that? He comes right at them. And as he's taking them to task, some of the other people around this conversation start murmuring. Isn't that the guy that they want to kill? Teaching them like that? Talking at them like this? Why are they letting him speak like that? How come they don't do anything about it? Which, give, which starts making them wonder. Like, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? Is this some like, prophet? Like, why aren't they doing anything to him? And the Pharisees start trying to find a way to arrest him. And he just keeps teaching in the midst of this. And controversy stirs up, and divisions among the people stir up. And Nicodemus, of all people, who we heard about earlier with the new birth story, he actually tells everyone that we should just hear Jesus out. And so on the last day of the great feast, which is celebrated with a torchlight and song, remembering the provision of God in the wilderness, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Do you get the context for that? with torchlight dancing around him, symbolizing God leading them by light in the wilderness, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This light motif repeated over and over again in the Gospel of John. Well, this actually, in this particular vignette, um, it's really as far as this exposition gets to go. He'll tease it out more later. But in this moment, that's as far as he gets to go because when he says that, all the people around him want to know is what authority, by what authority does he get to make that claim? By what authority do you say things like that, Jesus? And I want you to imagine in this conversation that, goes, that, that, take, that takes place or it's about to take place, I want you to imagine sort of a tennis ball bouncing back and forth between two people, okay? Because this is just going to get volleyed back and forth a lot. By what authority do you say these things? And Jesus tells them that his father testifies for him. To which they respond, where is your father? He says, if you knew me, you would know my father. And then he says this, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Did you hear that? 
Friends, I don't know what you imagine Jesus was like when he walked on earth in the flesh, but listen to the kinds of things that come out of his mouth. Unless you believe me, you will die in your sins. Who says that? So incredible was this claim that even though the Judeans were just talking about who's your father, where's your father stuff, they kind of abandoned that for a minute and they just simply ask, who are you? Word for word, who are you? And he says, I'm who I've been telling you I am. And as he said these things, as he was talking, we're told, people began to believe in him. And keep following this tennis ball back and forth. And to those who believed in him, that's what we're told. Those who believed in him, Jesus invites them to make their home in his word. Abide in my word, he says. Abide in my word and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And these people, these people who believed in him, they're offended by this. Maybe you've just heard that taken out of context somewhere. Abide in me. The truth will set you free. Maybe it doesn't offend you. This incensed them. Because when Jesus says that they need freedom, what's implied? They're slaves. And he doesn't back off when they're incensed. He doesn't back off. He says, everyone who practices sin is enslaved. But the Son can set you free. And if you're following a sort of tennis ball movement, it starts to get faster, and the ball gets hit a lot harder here pretty soon. One commentator says this about what's coming. And so now we need to strap on our seatbelts because the next several sentences are the most difficult verses in the entire Gospel of John. Now comes a series of sharp and increasingly bitter remarks until the contending parties seem downright hateful of each other in the end. However interpreted, this is the hardest passage to teach in the entire Gospel of John. So pray for me uh, as we continue. <laughs> um, Jesus tells these people who believed in him that they want to kill him. Yes, they believed in him and they wanted to kill him. He says that they want to kill him because his word has no home in them. But that they're just doing what their father told them to do. So at that point when he brings up their father, they say for the second time, our father's Abraham. Our father's Abraham. Jesus says, if it were really Abraham... If your father was really Abraham, then you would do what he did. But you're not doing what he did. You're doing the work of your father. Things get kind of confusing because when they said, our father's Abraham, and he says, no, you're not. No, no, he's not. You're doing the work of your father. That's kind of a confusing thing. So they're like, well, we're not like illegitimate children. Like we don't have an other father, which, which may be kind of a stab at Jesus's sort of mysterious birth. Like he's in a place where people knew his story. It's, it, it could be likely that they didn't believe that he was miraculously conceived and that Mary actually just had some secret, you know? Um, and so maybe they were kind of bringing that up. We don't really know. But they're offended by this and sort of losing this Abraham argument. They actually just kind of put their foot on the pedal and say, well, well, our father's God. To which Jesus responds, if God were your father, you'd love me. You know why you don't understand what I say? Because you're not able to bear it. And friends, it's not that Jesus is confusing in this text. There are times Jesus says stuff that's really confusing or confounding. 
We're actually, I mean, at one point in, in later on in the gospel of John, we may hit on this. The disciples actually say after like two and a half years with Jesus, they're like, oh, now you're speaking to us plainly because it's been a while, you know, kind of thing. This isn't that. He, he's not being confusing here. It's that they're literally unable to cope with or bear Jesus's word. Maybe like a roommate. He doesn't want to hear. The Greek here has this implication that there's an underlying message in what Jesus is teaching, that they're unable to bear. And if you think that's a hard statement, you know what he says next? <laughs> he says, you know why you don't understand what I say? Because you're not able to bear it. And then he says, and you know who your father really is? It's the devil. <laughs> he's, he's a liar. And because you're his children, you can't even stand the truth. That's why you don't believe me. Precisely, you don't believe me because I'm telling the truth and you don't deal in truth. You deal in lies. That's why you don't believe me. You can't. You know who does believe me? You know who does hear me? Anybody who's of God. And then it gets uglier. This tennis ball match, it just gets nasty. They start saying he's a demon and he's a Samaritan. They start calling him names. Earlier in our staff meeting, Wynn said that this kind of has this ring of somebody being like, yeah, your mom's a Samaritan, you know, and he's, he's kind of right. Like, that's kind of how this digresses. It starts to get kind of weird and catty. This argument just, it deteriorates. It reaches this climax when Jesus tells them that they haven't known God. That Abraham, who they claim as father, was glad to see Jesus. And they're like, what? Now you're saying you know Abraham? How could you know he was glad to see you? You're not even 50 years old. He lived thousands of years ago. And Jesus said, listen to me. Before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And what just happened is Jesus unambiguously declared himself to be God. Ashley, would you put up John 10, 33? Where this same crew later explains out loud why they wanted to stone Jesus. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, you make yourself out to be God. This is the text we're looking at today. This is heavy stuff. What the heck are we supposed to do with this? First friends, I want you to know why there is tension in the Gospels. Tension I'm sure that some of you have picked up on. Maybe you've never really explored. Why some want to crown him king and others want to kill him. Why on one Sunday, people wave palm branches and shout, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, the same people could stand in a crowd shouting, kill him. It's not for no reason that they want him king. They see the power with which he wields miracles. They hear the authority with which he teaches. And if they could just crown him king, he might be strong enough to carry out their agenda. But then, of course, they realize that the forces of evil that he's contending with are not outside of them, but within and when they realized that, they want nothing of it. Go back to where you came from, Jesus. You see, in this passage that we're looking at tonight, in John chapter 8, Jesus is not mincing words when he says, your father is the devil, or, or you're enslaved and in need of freedom. But it's not just about them. You and I are missing the whole point of this if we do not understand that this is directed right at us. A friend of mine today was lamenting the harshness of this passage. She said, Jesus just told these people that their father's the devil. I would be so angry if he said that to me. 
and she got it. Like she heard, I think, what we're supposed to hear in this. She was stirred up because this wasn't just a story about them. Jesus is pressing on the truth of the matter. We don't like to be told the truth. Like a friend in a romance they shouldn't be in or, or, or a roommate making terrible decisions. They don't want to hear it. Listen to Jesus' words from John 8, 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Perhaps because we like the word free, we miss the scathing implications, right? That we're enslaved. That you and I, apart from abiding in Jesus' word, are enslaved. It's not just your roommates. It's not just your friends. Do you know that it's about you and me? Years ago, I mean, like, I read this in 2003, I think. Put up this quote from, Ashley, would you put up the quote from Eugene Peterson for me? I read this in 2003. It still haunts me. And I think it's as true now as it was then, maybe more. Freedom is on everyone's lips. Freedom is announced and celebrated, but not many feel or act free. You want evidence? We live in a nation of complainers and a society of addicts. Everywhere we turn, we hear complaints. I can't spend my money the way I want. I can't spend my time the way I want. I can't be myself. I'm under the control of others all the time. And everywhere we meet addicts, addiction to alcohol and drugs, to compulsive work habits, to obsessive consumption. It's before social media even. His conclusion about what we actually do is we just trade masters. We exchange one for another all day long, but we stay enslaved. I read that in 2003, my senior year of college, and it was piercing. We don't like hearing that kind of thing. What we want is to hear of butterflies and rainbows, right? We want Jesus to, like, to get at work to take down the evil tyrants and set the captives free. We like that language, typically, because we don't actually think that this room is full of evil tyrants and captives. Jesus, if you would just get on my agenda. I, I know the tyrants. I know the places in this world I'd love for you to do mighty work. And, and friends, it's, uh, I hope and pray that we care uh, that, that, uh, that, that people in this world that are tyrants actually begin to have compassion and execute um, their power with justice. And I hope and pray that we are mindful of places in this world where captives need to be set free. But I think it's so easy for us to claim Jesus' name and clamor for his power to, to go when we think, well, surely that has nothing to do with in here. We're just funding those things. We're just praying for those things. But this room has tyrants and captives right in it. How many of us know that the work of Christ is directed at our hearts and not just at others? That when he says he has come to set the captives free, it's you and me. In two weeks, we get to look at John 9, which is kind of the flip side of this story. And all day I've just been like, Lord, I just want to preach out of John 9. Just let me preach out of John 9. Uh, it's like, I think it's a little easier for us to swallow. John 7, 8, 9, and maybe 10 all sort of take place in a similar context. I think Jesus is exploring this sort of, uh, or John at least for us, is teasing out this light metaphor a little bit. In John chapter 9, there's the story of a blind man who sees, of sick getting well, of the one who recognized his brokenness and the word of God made its home in him. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. 
But this passage tonight is about those who have eyes, but they're blind. Those who think of themselves as well, but need help. The righteous who are anything but. Do you see how these stories kind of go back to back? This is a story of people who should know. Who should know? They're claiming God and claiming Abraham and they have eyes to see and they, they spend time in the law and they know everything about Moses and they miss the Messiah. They talk about knowing God and God sent his son who says if you, if you want to know the Father, if you know me, you know the Father and they miss him. And they miss him. In, in, in chapter 8, we see those with eyes who are blind and in chapter 9, we see a blind man who sees and these are meant to sort of be read side by side. But this story Potentially both stories are, are, is our story. It's why I prayed at the beginning that God would comfort the afflicted. And, and if you think about those words, I doubt any of us in this room would argue with that, right? We all say amen to a prayer like that. Comfort all those that are hurting. We're like, yeah, that's a good prayer, right? But that he would afflict the comforted? Why would you pray for anything like that? We like being comfortable. What if we're like the friend who's enslaved? What if we're like the roommate who just doesn't want to hear it? What if we deny it or we don't know that we're enslaved? You see, Christ moves in love toward the outcast and the downtrodden. He does. He moves toward the poor and the sick, but he doesn't give up on others. Since they won't take any medicine, he has to resort to just telling them that they're sick. And this too, it's grace. It's like really hard grace. Like when you have to tell your friend that they're unhealthy. That's really hard. Like when you have to face your own slavery. You know how hard that is? And you know what Jesus says that we should do in response to this? When he comes out and he starts revealing these things about people who incidentally believed in him, a lot of commentators on this passage suggest that the people who are the greatest enemies of God are those who believe in him but don't abide in him. Those who affirm that he is who he says he is, but we don't remain in him. We don't do what his word says. We just give lip service to him. And we fight him and we fight him and we fight him and we fight him. And these commentators say that is so dangerous for us. We don't want to hear that kind of thing. The answer to our slavery, the answer to hearing that kind of thing is not actually for us to go do our own diagnosis. It's not to go sort of look and stare at yourself in the mirror, looking for flaws and wondering what's wrong. It's not to go do extensive self-examination. When Jesus reveals to us, by his grace may he reveal this to us, the ways in which we are enslaved... The work that he would have us do is not to sort of get to work detailing all the ways that I'm enslaved and, and game planning my way out of it. It's just to abide in his word. Let him do the work. If you're enslaved, that means you don't even have the power to free yourself. That's what it means. That's why your friend probably needs somebody to tell them. And I really pray it's somebody who loves them, not just somebody who's annoyed with them. If you're enslaved, you don't even have the power to free yourself. And you know the reason why you and I won't abide in his word, though? <laughs> why we won't do it? 
It's because we don't think we're that sick. We just think we need a little help. Or we just think others need a little help, right? We just want some help with our homework. That's all. I just want a little help in my dating life or my finances or the plans for the future. God, I don't need much. I just need you to help me with my future. It's why maybe the most common word that gets used in prayer is just. You ever notice that? God, would you just, would you just, as if all we need is a little thing, just, just, I don't need you to pour out your storehouses. I'm not in that bad of trouble. There's other people that are far worse off than me. All I need is just a scrap from your table. And Jesus is coming into our kitchen and saying, you don't get it. It's so much deeper than that. So may God afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. And, and may the afflicted, and friends, I, I have no doubt I'm the worst in this room. May the afflicted confess our need for his comfort. May we come to him acknowledging our need of a new home. That's kind of what that word abide means. A home where we're not slaves, but we're sons and daughters. Jesus says that we should abide in his word, that the true disciples of his would abide in his word. And so at the house every Tuesday night, you know what we do? We proclaim Jesus. And we sing songs based on the truth he's told us. And we center core groups around the person and teachings of Jesus. And if you spend time with our staff, we want to go with you into the home of the very word of God. I pray you do that with each other, too. Because it is there that we discover truth. Jesus has this very interesting thing, and man, he does this all the time. He gives us something to do, but the thing we do doesn't directly, like, guarantee anything. Like, he sort, of, he sort of says, this is work for you to do, and then I have a gift to give you, and that happens here. You abide in my word, and then you know what's going to happen? You're going to discover truth, and, and the truth is going to set you free. That's what's going to happen. Don't we, if we're honest, want freedom? <laughs> anyway, friends, Jesus' invitation is not to some crazy set of disciplines. It's not. It's not just some rigorous, I don't know, personality test or, or in life inventory um, or sitting down with all your roommates and asking them to just take pot shots and tell you all the ways that you're enslaved. That's not the invitation. The invitation is simply to abide in his word, to make the very heartbeat of your life his word and to remain there. And so in my mind, it looks something like this, that tonight, friends, you, you would go to bed with his word on your mind and in your heart. And it will probably be both conflict, or, or afflicting and comforting. And that when you wake up, his spirit would bring his word to you and that you would make room in your life to hear him and to learn from him and to find the one who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. The very light of life who shines in the darkness of our lives. For if we abide in him, we will know the truth we hunger for so greatly. And I know, I know y'all do. We get together corporately and I don't know if you dress up or if you come in, like, I don't know what you're planning to do when you come here. I hang out with enough of you in one-on-one -on -one situations. I know the condition of my heart. I know what the scriptures say about all of us to know how much we long for freedom and we long for truth and we long to know the way, the way to live, the way of meaning in this world. Jesus just says, abide in him. And we will know that truth that we hunger for so greatly. And that truth will free us. Those who have ears, let them hear. Let them abide in him and know the truth and find freedom.
Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the way you and your triune self work out our salvation and bring truth into our lives, would you do it here? You told, um, your son told some people around him that they couldn't even hear him because they couldn't bear it. And I'm not sure what they were supposed to do about that, God. I just know that we need help. So help us. Help us to risk admitting and confessing the brokenness in our lives and the ways in which we're enslaved with the hope that you might actually be able to redeem and bring freedom and bring strength and bring life into our lives. Pray for for me and all of my friends that we would learn what it might mean to abide in your word, to remain there, to make our home in your word, to have our comings and our goings be to and from your word. Even as we, we sing songs that are based off your word tonight, may your spirit penetrate our minds and our hearts, plant seeds of your word deep within us, and may it bear fruit in the order of 30, 60, 100 fold in our lives. And as you begin to do that work in us, may you free us to lovingly and compassionately carry the good news that you bring comfort to the afflicted, to our roommates and our friends. That as broken and as sick as I am, I would never judge my roommate or my friend. But I might sometimes see the sickness in them and want want to tell them about the life you have for them. And that life we know from your son's words, that life is found by abiding in you. Teach us how to do that and teach us how to do it together, we pray. Hear our praises now. Um, Please receive them with joy. Amen.